New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Origins of Power, Prosperity, and Poverty, Why Nations Fail, Darren A. Smololo, James A. Robinson. Chapter 1. So Close and Yet So Different. The Economics of the Rio Grande. The city of the Nogales is cut in half by a fence. If you stand by and look north, you'll see Nogales, Arizona, located in Santa Cruz County. The income of the average household there is about $30,000 a year. The most teenagers are in school, the majority of adults are high school graduates. Despite all the arguments people make about how deficient the U.S. healthcare system is, the population is relatively healthy, with high life expectancy by global standards. Many of the residents are above age 65 and have access to Medicare. It's just one of the many services that government provides that most take for granted, such as electricity, telephones, sewage system, public health, a road network linking them to other cities in the area, and to the rest of the United States, and last but not least, law and order. The people of Nuglaze, Arizona, can go about their daily activities without fear for life or safety and not constantly afraid of theft expropriation, or other things that might jeopardize their investments in their businesses and houses. Equally important, the residents of Nogales, Arizona, take it for granted with all of its inefficiency and occasional corruption, the government is their agent. They can vote to replace their mayor, congressmen, and senators. They vote in a presidential elections that determine who will lead their country. Democracy is second nature for them. Life south of the fence, just a feet away, is rather different. While residents of Nogales, Sonora live in a relatively prosperous part of the Mexico, the income of the average household there is about one-third in Nogales, Arizona. Most adults in Nogales, Sonora do not have a high school degree, many teenagers are in no school. Mothers have to worry about high rates of infant mortality. Poor public health conditions mean it's no surprise that residents of Snuggly Sonora do not live as long as their northern neighbors. They also don't have an access to many public amenities. Roads are in a condition south of the fence. Law and order is in a worse condition. Crime is high. Opening a business is a risky activity. Not only do you risk robbery, but getting all the permissions and greasing all the palms just to open is no easy endeavor. The residents of Nogales and Nora live with politicians' corruption and ineptitude every day. In contrast to their northern neighbors, democracy is a very recent experience for them. Until the political reforms of the thousand, Nogales, Sonora, just like the rest of the Mexico, was under the corrupt control of Institutional Revolutionary Party or Partido Revolucionario Institutional PRI. How could the two halves, what is essentially the same city, be so different? There's no difference in geography, climate, or other types of diseases prevalent in the area, since germs do not face any restrictions crossing back and forth between the United States and Mexico. Of course, health conditions are very different, but this has nothing to do with disease environment. It's because people south of the border live with inferior sanitary conditions and lack decent health care. But perhaps the residents are very different. Could it be that residents of Nogales, Arizona are grandchildren of migrants of Europe, while those in South are descendants of Aztecs? Not so. 
The backgrounds of people on both sides of the border are quite similar. After Mexico became independent from Spain in 1821, the area around Los Dos Nogales was part of the Mexican state of Veracruz, California. It remained so even after Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848. Indeed, it was only after the Gaston Purchase of 1853 that the U.S. border was extended into this area. It was Lieutenant um, N. Mitchell. Who, while serving the border, noted the presence of pretty little volume lost nogles. Here, on either side of the border, the two cities rose up. The inhabitants of Nogales, Arizona, Nogales, Sonora, share ancestors, enjoy the same food and same music. We would hazard to say they have the same culture. Of course, there is a very simple and obvious explanation for the differences between two halves of Nogales. You probably long since guessed. The very border that defines the two halves, Nogales, Arizona, is the United States. Its inhabitants have access to economic institutions of the United States, which enable them to choose their occupations freely, acquire schooling and skills, and able encourage their employees to invest in the best technology, which leads to higher wages for them. They also have an access to political institutions that allow them to take part in the democratic process, to elect their representatives, and replace if they misbehave. In consequence, politicians provide basic services ranging from public health to roads to law and order that citizens demand. Those of Nogales and Nora are not so lucky. They live in a different world shaped by different institutions. These different situations create very disparate incentives for inhabitants of the two Nogaleses, and for entrepreneurs and businesses willing to invest there. These incentives, created by different institutions of Nogales and the countries in which they are situated, are the main reason for the differences in economic prosperity on the both two sides of the border. Why are the institutions of the United States so much more conducive to economic success than those of the Mexico or, for the matter, the rest of the Latin America? The answer to this question lies in a way that different societies formed during early colonial period and institutional divergence took place then, with implications lasting into the present day. To understand this divergence, we must begin right at the foundation of the colonies in North and Latin America. The founding of Buenos Aires. Early in 1516, the Spanish navigator Juan de Solís sailed into wide estuary of the eastern seaboard of South America. Waiting ashore, de Solís claimed the land for Spain, naming the river Rio de Plata, "River of Silver," quote unquote, since the local people possessed silver. The indigenous people on the either side of the estuary, Caros、um, in what is now Uruguay and Cordi on plains that were to be known, Pampas in modern Argentina, regarded newcomers with hostility. These locals were hunter-gatherers who live in small groups without strong centralized political authorities. Indeed, it was such a band、um, of Charus who climbed the Solis to that as explored the new domains he had attempted to occupy for Spain. In 1534, the Spanish, still optimistic, sent out a first mission settlers from Spain under the leadership of Pedro de Mendoza. They founded a town on the site of Buenos Aires in the same year. It should have been an ideal place for Europeans. 
Buenos literally meaning good airs, had a hospitable, temperate climate. Yet the first day of the Spaniards that were, were short-lived, they were not good after good affairs, but resources to extract and labor to cores. The churries in Quarndi were not obliging, however. They refused to provide food to Spanidars and refused to work when caught. They attacked the new settlements with their bows and arrows. Spanidars grew hungry, since they had not anticipated having to provide food for themselves. Buenos was not what they had dreamed of. The local people could not be forced to providing labor. The area had no silver or gold to exploit. The silver that the Solis found that actually come all the way from Inca State and the Andes far to the west. Spanidars, while trying to survive, started sending out expeditions to find a new place that would offer great riches and populations easier to coerce. In 1537, one of these expeditions, under leadership of Juan de Ayolos, penetrated up to Parana River, searching for a route to the Incas. On its way, it made contact with Guarani, a sedentary people with agricultural economy based on maize and cassava. The Ayolas um, immediately realized that Guarani were a completely different proposition from Toulouse and Cordy. After a brief conflict, the Spanish overcame Guarani resistance and founded a town, Nueva Sonora. I'm sorry for my Spanish, the Santa Maria de, Maria de Li, which remains the capital of Paraguay today. The conquistators married Guarani princesses, quickly set themselves up a new aristocracy. They adapt the existing systems of forced labor in tribute of the Guarani with themselves at the helm. This was the kind of colony they wanted to set up, and within four years, Buenos was abandoned as all Spaniards would settle their move to the new town. Buenos the Paris of South America, a city of wide European-style boulevards based on the great agricultural wealth of the Pampas, was not resettled until 1580. The abandonment of Buenos and the conquest of Guarani reveals the logic of European colonization of the Americas. Early Spanish, as well, we will see, English colonists were not interested in tilling the soil themselves. They wanted others to do it for them, and they wanted riches, gold and silver, and to plunder. From Cajamarca, the expeditions of the Solis de Mendozoa, the Iolas, came in the wake of more famous one that followed Christopher Columbus' sighting of one of the islands of the Bahamas on October 12, 1492. Spanish expansion and colonization of the Americas began in earnest with invasion of Mexico by Hernan Cortes in 15. 19, the expedition of Francisco Pizarro to Peru a decade and a half later, an expedition of Pedro de Mendoza to the Rio de la Plata just two years after that. Over the next century, Spain conquered and colonized most of the central, western, and southern South America, while Portugal claimed Brazil to the east. The Spanish strategy of colonization was highly effective. First perfected by Cortes in Mexico, it was based on the observation that the best way for Spanish to subdue opposition was to capture indigenous leader. 
This strategy enables Spanish to claim the accumulated wealth of the leader, coerce indigenous peoples to give tribute and food. The next step was setting themselves up as a new elite of the indigenous society and taking control of the existing methods of taxation, tribute, and particularly um, forced labor. When Cortes and his men arrive at the great exact tap capital of Tenochtitlan on November 8, 1519, they were welcomed by Motezoma, the Aztec emperor, who had decided in the face of much dev- advice from his counselors to welcome Spaniards peacefully. What happened next is well described by the account compiled after 1545 by Franciscan priest Bernma. Bernardo Dito de Sacón and his famous Florence's Cortices. And once the, the Spanish firmly sealed, seized Moxua, they and each of the guns shut off, um, fear prevailed. It was as if everyone had swallowed his heart. Even before it had grown dark, there was terror, there was astonishment, there was apprehension, there was a stunning of people. And when it dawned, um, Therapune were proclaim all the things which the Spaniards required white tortillas, roasted turkey, hens, eggs, fresh water, wood, firewood, charcoal. This had Moctezuma indeed commanded. And when the Spaniards were well settled, they Therapune inquired of Mosema, so as to all the city's treasure. With great zeal, they sought gold. And Moxema thereupon, when leading to the Spaniards, they went surrounding them, each holding them, each grasping him. And when they reached Storehouse, a place called Tegocualo, thereupon they brought forth all the brilliant things the quizzel feather had fan, the devices, the shields, the golden this, the golden nose screen, the golden leg bands, the golden arm bands, the golden forehead bands. Thereupon was detached the gold. At once they ignited, set fire to all the precious things. They all burned, and the gold, those Spaniards formed into separate bars. And Spanish walked everywhere. They took all, all that they saw, which they saw to be good. Thereupon they went to Mosema Awon's storehouse, the place called Totola, they brought forth Moxema on property, precious things all, the necklaces with pedants, the armbands with the tufts of quetzal fetters, the golden armbands, bracelets, the golden bands with shells, and turquoise design, the attribute of the ruler, they took it all. The military conquest of the Aztecs was completed by 1521. Cortes, as the governor, of the province of New Spain, they began dividing most valuable resource to indigenous population through the institution of economic mania. The economic mania had first appeared in 15th century Spain as part of the reconquest of the south of the country from Moors, Arabs, who had settled during and after 8th century. In a new world, it took on a much more pernicious form. It was a grant of indigenous peoples to Spaniards, known as Economidoros, sorry for my Spanish. The indigenous people had to give economic tribute and labor services in exchange for the Economidro was charged with converting them to Christianity. 
A vivid early account of the world working of the economia has come down to us from Bermodo de las Casas, the Bermudian priest who formulated the earliest and one of the devastating critiques of Spanish colonial system. De las Casas arrived on the Spanish island of Hispaniola in 1502 with a fleet of ships led by new governor Nicolas de Ovando. He became increasingly disillusioned and disturbed by the cruel and exploitative treatment of indigenous peoples he witnessed every day. In 1513, he took part as a chaplain in a Spanish conquest of Cuba, even being granted an economia for his service. However, he renounced the grant and began a long campaign to reform Spanish colonial institutions. His efforts culminated. culminated Um, in his book, a short account of the destruction of the Indies, written in 1542, withering attack on a barbarity, a Spanish rule, an economia he has this to say in a case of Nicargo. Each of the settlers took up residence in a town allotted to them or encumbered to him, as the legal phrase has it. Put the inhabitants to work for him, stole their already scarce footsteps for himself, and took over the lands owned and worked by natives, in which they would they traditionally grew their own produce. The settlers would treat the whole of the native population, dignitaries, old men, women, and children, as the members of his household, as such, make them labor night and day in his own interest without any rest whatsoever. For the conquest of New Granada, modern Colombia de las Casas reports the whole Spanish strategy in action. To realize their long-term purpose of seizing all, all available gold, the Spaniards employed their usual strategy of apportioning them among themselves or encommending, as they have it, the towns and their inhabitants, and then, as ever, treating them as common slaves. The man in a world command of the expedition seized the king of the whole territory for himself, held him prisoner for six or seven months, quite illicitly demanding more and more gold and minerals from him. The king. Juan Bogota was terrified at and his anxiety to free himself from clutches of its tormentors. He consented to the demand that he fill an entire house with gold and it over. To this end, he sent his people off in search of gold. Bit by bit, they brought it along with precious stones, but still the house was not filled. And the Spaniards eventually declared that they would put him to death, but for breaking his promise. The commander suggested they would bring the case before him as a representative of law, and when they did so, entering for formal accusations against the king, he sentenced him to torture. Shoot, he persisted in not honoring the bargain. They tortured him with strapadado, put burning tallow on his belly. Pinned both his legs to poles with iron hoops in his necks, with another, and then with two men holding his hands, proceeded to burn the soles of his feet. From time to time, the commander would look in and repeat they would torture him to death slowly unless he produced more gold, and this is why they did. The king eventually succumbing to the agonies they inflicted on him. The strategy and institutions of conquest perfected in New Mexico were eagerly adopted elsewhere in the Spanish Empire. 
Nowhere was this done more effectively than in Pizarro's conquest of Peru, as the Las Casas begins his account. In 1531, another great villain journeyed with a number of men to the kingdom of Peru. He set out with every intention of imitating the strategy and the tactics of his fellow adventurers in other parts of the New World. Pizarro, begun on a coast near Peruvian town of Tumbes, marched out on November 15, 1532. He reached the mountain town of Cajamarca, where the Inca emperor Atahualpa was encamped in with his army. Next day, Acuña, who had just vanquished his brother Hucar in a contest over who would succeed the diseased father Huacapac. Came with his retinue to where Spanish were camped. Atahualpa was irritated because the news of atrocities that the Spanish had already committed, such as violating the Temple of Sun God, had reached him. What transpired next is well known. The Spanish laid a trap and sprang it and killed Atahualpa guards and retainers, possibly as many as two thousand people, and captured the king. To gain his freedom, Atahualpa had to promise to fill one room with gold and two or more of the same size with silver. He did this, but the Spanish, ranging on his promises, strangled him in July fifteen thirty-three. In November, the Spanish captured the Inca capital of Cusco. Where the Incan aristocracy received the same treatment as Atahualpa, being imprisoned until they produced gold and silver. But they did not satisfy Spanish demands. They were burned alive. The great artistic treasures of Cusco, such as Temple of Sun, they had their gold stripped from them, melted down into ingots. At this point, the Spanish focused on the people of Inca Empire. As in Mexico, citizens were divided into economias, with one going to each of the conquistadors who had accompanied Pizarro. The economia was the main institution used for control and organization of labor in an early colonial period, but it soon faced vigorous contender. In 1545, a local named Diego Guapola was searching for an indigenous shrine high in, high in Andes in what is today Bolivia. He was thrown to the ground by a sudden gust of wind. In front of him appeared a catch of civil war. This was part of the vast mountain of silver, which the Spanish baptized El Cerro Rico, the Rich Hill. Around it grew the city of Postosi. Which, at its height of, in 1650, had a population of 160,000 people, larger than Lisbon and Venice in this period. To exploit the silver, the Spanish needed miners. A lot of miners. They sent a new visitor, the chief Spanish colonial official Francisco Toledo, arriving in Peru in 1569. First, spent five years traveling around and investigating his new charge. He also commissioned a massive survey of the entire adult populations to find out the labor he needed. The Toledo first moved of almost the entire indigenous population, concentrating them in new towns called Re de Conados, literally reductions, which would facilitate the expulsion of labor by Spanish crown. 
Then he revived and adapted an Inca labor institution known as Mira, which in the Inca's language, Quasara means a turn. Under the Mira system, the Incas had used forced labor to run plantations, design the, to provide food for temples, aristocracy, and the army. In return, Inca elites provided famine relief and security. In the Toledo's pans, the Mira, especially the Potosi Leva, was to become the largest and most onerous theme of the labor exploitation in the Spanish colonial period. The Toledo defined a huge catchment of area um, running from middle of the modern Peru encompassing most of the modern Bolivia. It covered almost about 200,000 square miles. In this area, one-seventh of the male inhabitants newly arrived in their reductions were required to work in the mines of Potosi. The Potosi Mahamira endured throughout the entire colonial period was abolished only in 1825. Map 1 shows the catchment area of Mira superimposed on the extent on the Inca Empire at the time of the Spanish conquest illustrates the extent to which Mira overlap with heartland of the empire, encompassing the capital Cusco. Remarkably, you will still see um, the legacy of Mira in Peru today. To take differences between the provinces of Calca and nearby Acumayo, there appears to be few differences among these provinces. Both are high in mountains, and each is inhabited by Quokka-speaking descendants of the Incas. Yet, Akomoya is much more poor, which with inhabitants consuming one-third less than those in Kaka. The people notice. In Inkama, they ask, interpreted for foreigners. Don't you know that people here are poorer than the people over there in Kalka? Why would you ever want to come here? Interpret because it's much harder to get to Komodo from the regional capital of Cusco, the ancient center of the Inca Empire, than it is to the to get to Kalka. The road to Kalka is surfaced to one of the Akamoda is in a terrible state of disrepair. To get beyond Akamoda, you need a horse or a mule. In Kalka, Akamoda, People grow the same crops, but in Kaka, they sell them on the market for money. In Gamoya, they grow food for their own subsistence. These inequalities, apparent to the eye and to people who live there, can be understood in terms of institutional differences between these departments, institutional differences with historical roots going back to the police, and plan for effective exploitation of indigenous labor. The major historical differences between Okomoda and Kaka is that Okomoda was in a catchment area of the Postori Mira, Kaka was not. In addition to concentration of labor in Mira, the Toledo consolidated the economia in the head tax of fixed sum payable by each adult male every year in silver. This was another scheme designed to force people into the labor market and reduce wages for Spanish landowners. Another institution, the Reparmito de Moreto, also became widespread during the, um, the Polito tenure. Derived from Spanish verb reparito to distribute this um, Reparmito, literally the distribution of goods, involved the forced sale of goods to locals at prices determined by Spaniards. Finally, the Toledo introduced to introduced the turgin, meaning literally the burden, which used the indigenous people to carry heavy loads of goods such as wine or cocoa, uh, leaves or textiles, a subtitle, f- a substitute for 
pack animals for the business ventures of the Spanish elite. Throughout the Spanish colonial world in the Americas, similar institutions and social structures emerged. After an initial phase of looting and gold and silver lust, the Spanish created a web of institutions designed to exploit the indigenous peoples. The full gamut of Economia Mida Reparmido the Trajan was designed to force the indigenous people's living standard down to a subsistence level to and it does extract all income in the excess of this for Spaniards. This was achieved by expropriating their lands, forcing them to work, offering low wages for labor services, imposing high taxes and charging high prices for goods that were not even voluntarily bought. Though these institutions generated a lot of wealth for Spanish crown and made the conquistadors and their descendants very rich, they also turned Latin America into the most unequal continent in the world, sapped much of its economic potential.